Chapter 41, beginning in verse 1, the questions continue. The Lord says, can you draw Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? In this chapter, the Lord invites Job to consider another creature, Leviathan. And whatever this creature is, it's too strong for hooks and ropes and cords and spikes in verses 1 and 2. The animal is dangerous. It's not going to beg you for mercy. It's not going to serve as a work animal. It's not going to be domesticated. It will refuse to be turned into a pet. And you won't find it for sale in the marketplace. It can't be captured. And the mere sight of the creature causes most people to faint. And if all of this is true of God's creature, and if it's true that the Lord is the creator, the Lord will use Behemoth in the last chapter, a land creature, and Leviathan, a sea creature, and basically make the argument, if you can't even come to grips with creatures that I've made, how in the world do you think that you can stand against God? And so in this chapter, Leviathan is described a strong creature with powerful limbs, a creature with an impenetrable hide, enormously strong jaws, fearsome teeth, overlapping scales on its back with dragon-like creatures or features. It, It snorts, flashes of light, reddish eyes, fire and sparks come out of its mouth. And when it breathes... It sets things on fire. The beast seems immune from weapons. Swords, spears, darts, javelins, arrows, stones, slingshots. Even the ones that are made from metal. The backside of the creature appears armor-plated. And underside, it has jagged scales that are so sharp that they're like glass. And when the creature goes into the mud, it leaves drag marks. Its speed is frightening. When it's in the water, it churns so much that it looks like the water is boiling. Some scholars suggest that the book of Job is using a fanciful description One Bible scholar said, as special effects, exaggerated details added by the writer of Job to better convey the terror it struck in man. He writes, no doubt the author was comparing the crocodile to a mythical creature like a dragon, probably already popular in ancient folklore, unquote. The reason why this person comes up with that view? Because he's living in a world where he goes, it can't be a dinosaur. Dinosaurs didn't exist back in those days. They were already gone for 65 million years. Scholars suggest the book of Job is dramatic poetry. But does that mean that the words that God speaks or 
the descriptions that God renders. Now, the scholars use the word fanciful, exaggerated, hyperbole. You probably would use the word lying. Is this a description of a real creature or a mythical creature? Is it the description of a creature that still exists or is now extinct? Well, all of that to say, I'm calling this a look at Leviathan. <laughs> look at chapter 41 again, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Remember, he's talking about Behemoth, the land creature. Now he's talking about a sea creature. And he basically says, hey, can you go out fishing and just catch this guy? There was a song that was popular when I was growing up. You get a line, I get a pole, honey. You get a line, I'll get a pole, babe. He's basically saying, Job, you get a line. Get a pole. See if you can catch this guy. And the Hebrew word... Leviathan or Leviathan is an, is an interesting word. It's hard to translate. It describes a creature that is a twisting, writhing, serpent-like creature. It appears in Job chapter 3, verse 8. It appears in the book of Psalms 74, 14, and 104, verse 26. And then again in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. And in all of those places where the word appears, it, disguise, it describes a creature that is so overwhelming that no human being is a match for it, and the only person who can deal with it is God. In Psalm 74, 14, it says... Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy might. Thou didst break the heads of the dragons, tanim, large reptilian creatures on the waters. Thou didst crush the heads of Leviathan, same word. You did give him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Isaiah 51, 9, awake. Awake, put on strength, it says in Isaiah 51, 9. O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Wast it not thou that did cut Rahab in pieces, that didst pierce the dragon? Was it not thou that didst dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? In the previous chapter... Like I said, Behemoth is a land creature. Whatever this creature is, it's a water creature. It says, can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? In the ancient world, particularly in the world when this was written, we're talking 1500 BC, 1800 BC, perhaps even earlier. In the ancient Canaanite literature, Leviathan was a word that was used among those ancient peoples to describe a seven-headed sea dragon. And that 
myth caused some people who would read the book of Job and would read this particular passage to think, well, they're drawing on an ancient myth, but this is probably an exaggeration or a hyperbole or some poetic expression But the way that I would answer that is I would say there are words that we use in our language, even to this day, that might have a pagan origin, but we still use it. Let me give you an example. Monday, Moonday, Thor's Day, the god Thor. Usage determines meaning. In other words, Typically, when you say Sunday, are you paying homage to the sun god? Or Monday, are you paying homage to the moon god? Or Thursday, are you paying homage to Thor? No, it's a part of an idiomatic expression where words come down into the language. And I'm going to suggest to you that it probably, a probably more satisfying explanation is that it describes a real creature that actually existed. The most popular answer to what is Leviathan, like I said, Augustine said that it was a whale. One ancient Bible writer said that he thought that it might be a hippopotamus, or actually not, that's Bahamoth. This one, the the overwhelming um, consensus seems to be a giant crocodile. And that popular conclusion comes from the fact that a description of of its teeth given in chapter 41 in verse 14, it it, it, it talks about who can open the doors of its face with all its terrible teeth all around. And his rows of scales are his pride. So it's describing some sort of creature with teeth, with scales. It's speedy in the water in verse 32. And so when it says, can you put a reed through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook, the idea is that whatever this thing is, you can't tame it. The imagery of putting a reed through the nose or a jaw in the hook is going to actually be used later on in the Bible in the book of Ezekiel chapter 29 verses 3 and 4 where the book of Ezekiel describes the Lord capturing Pharaoh like a crocodile and putting hooks in his jaw to prove that the God of the Bible can take a human being and put the human being where it needs to be. And so, whatever this creature is, you can't catch it. You can't subjugate it. In verse 3 it says, will he make supplications to you? In other words, when you come face to face with it, will this beast say... Please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. Or when you come face to face with it, will you go, please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. That's the idea. Will he speak softly to you? What that means is when you're terrified and you think that something's going to hurt you, you might say, please don't hurt me, please don't. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? What in the world does that mean? I think that it probably means 
Because you both live in the same world, will he sue for peace? Will he make a covenant with you in the terms of, look, let's make an agreement. I'll agree not to hurt you if you agree not to hurt me. Can Job make this creature his eternal servant? Or when one king would capture another king in the ancient world, they would make covenants with each other in order to maintain the peace. That's what's happening right at this very moment. And Egypt with Gaza and Israel. They both go down to Egypt and they're trying to make a deal so that they can live in peace. It says, will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? You know what we should have done? We should have had an, an, an image of a Hollywood starlet holding up her little dog. Do you know how it's so cool for girls, you know, to hold up their little dogs because their little dogs are so cool? And so the idea is, hey, can you ever play with this creature? Can you hold it up? Can you put a leash on it? Do you think it will ever be the fashion that you have your very own Leviathan? Will your companions make a banquet of him? In other words, will you ever find him on the menu at your favorite Cajun restaurant? Hey, yeah, Shay, I think I'll have, I'll have one of those Leviathans. Why does it say it's the other green meat, Shay? You know, in Louisiana, they eat alligator and they eat frog. It sounds pretty disgusting eating reptile, doesn't it? Will you find him on the menu? Will they apportion him among the merchants? The idea being, you will catch it and spread it out in the marketplace. Can you fill his skin with harpoons, verse 7, or his head with fishing spears? Whatever this creature is, even if a bunch of people get together and try to capture it, it seems almost impossible Will you lay your hand on him? Remember the battle. Never do it again. It's an idiomatic expression which means touch him once and you'll never try it again. (laughs) One translation says you will never forget that fight. Maybe you grew up in a world where you put your hand where it didn't belong and someone said to you, are you prepared to lose that hand? That's exactly what he's talking about. In verse 9 it says, Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? The features of this creature are overwhelming. And the idea of actually capturing him or domesticating him or even subjugating him is something that isn't even a possibility. And so in verses 10 and 11 it says, No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? And all of this to say that in verse 10. The creature is immune to man's strength and man's weapons and man's will. This is one of the reasons why I find it really, really difficult to believe that it could be a crocodile. Because crocodiles, as fierce as they are, as difficult as they are, as ferocious as they are, have been killed. Even if we think about a crocodile that's not 10 feet or 15 feet, or 30 feet, or 40 feet, or even 50 feet. 
How much more is God immune from man's strength and man's weapons or man's will? And so that seems to be the idea. In in other words, to live in a world where people think that they can subjugate God, tame God, make God do what you want God to do. And and again, that seems to be the, the world in which we live. There are people who believe that they can make God do things. By holding their breath. I'll show God I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to tell my friends that I love them. That'll show them. Do you think that you can actually manipulate God? Or motivate God? Or move God? And this is the question and the point of the passage. Klein writes, Here indeed is the point of the passage. Job is to discover from his inability to vanquish even a fellow creature the folly of aspiring to the creator's throne. And this becomes the key concept. Remember, the point that the Lord has made up until now is, do you have control over creation? The big answer, no. Do you have control over some of the creatures? Well, you might. You might be able to squash a bug and you might be able to call out the exterminator and rid yourself of some pests. But the Lord is describing a creature that you don't have control over. To vanquish a fellow creature to the folly of aspiring to the creator's throne And that becomes maybe one of the important points of this particular passage. This is the folly of Satan. This was the goal of Satan. Remember in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezekiel, there is this picture that's given in the Bible where this being says, I will ascend on high. I will ascend. Ascend to the throne of heaven. I will be like the most high. How can we presume on his judgment and wisdom and decision? But every time, every single time that you say, Lord, why did you do that? You're in effect saying, Lord, if I were God, I would do things different. And part of the point of the passage is that's kind of a dumb... Now, let's not sugarcoat it. It's not just kind of a dumb thing to say. It's a really dumb thing to say. And the reason why it's a really dumb thing to say is because it presumes that we know stuff that we don't know. Remember, part of the point of this passage is do you understand that the self-existent God who created the heavens and the earth, who ordered all things from the beginning, who devised the plan of salvation, who sends Jesus to love us and die for us, that this supernatural self-existent God is at work in your life? And so what is our great sin? Pride. What is the consistent history of humanity? Rebellion against God. What is What is it that we stubbornly refuse to embrace? Faith in God and trust in Jesus and believing the gospel. I remember when I got home from my radio program and I turned on the news and obviously the thing that was dominating the news, whether it was Fox News or CNN or wherever channel you turn, was the suicide of 
Robin Williams. And as the events unfold and you find out that he hung himself with his own belt, that they found a pocket knife close by, that there, that there were several lateral wounds on his wrists. And, and, and again, I, I know that as, as, as the things unfold, we're going to find out more and more and more. And then you begin to think about his life and you think about his contribution and you think about his genius and you think about his, uh, his ability to make people laugh and you think, how is it possible? Because as you hone in on his house, there is this beautiful seven or 8,000 foot or square foot mansion with beautiful garages overlooking just north of the San Francisco Bay and you think how is it possible that you can have millions and millions and millions of dollars in the bank and you can have this beautiful life and be loved by everyone and wherever you go you laugh and you're empty inside and there's this darkness and there's this emptiness inside of you and the pain is so overwhelming that you feel like you can't breathe and then finally you act on it. Imagine swimming in a deep ocean with a giant killer shark or standing toe to toe with an ancient dinosaur. Imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden a gigantic dinosaur shows up that can swallow you whole. And the Lord says, Job, your chances with them are way better than your chances with me. You know, there's a character in the Bible that was so upset and so hurt and so empty he wanted to kill himself. His name was Jonah. Most of you know the story. How Jonah was told by God, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell these people that they've got 40 days and then it's judgment. And Jonah, you may or may not know, hated the Ninevites. He hated them because they were wicked and because they were cruel. He hated them because they made regular trips from northern Iraq in the area that you and I now call Mosul, where the ISIS people are cutting off children's head and crucifying Christians, they would make their way into Israel and they would raid whole villages. They would kill men, women, and children. They would cut off their heads. They would take a a type of acidic material and they would bleach, literally leach the skin and they would make piles of skulls. And Jonah says, I don't like these people. These are wicked people, evil people, horrible people. I don't want to talk to them. And the Lord says, go to Nineveh and tell them. It's 40 days until judgment. He goes, not going to do it. And instead of going to Nineveh, he heads in the opposite direction. And as he heads in the opposite direction, he finds himself on a ship. And there's a gigantic storm. And in the midst of the gigantic storm, through divination, the captain of the ship determines that it's the guy in the hold who's all the cause of the problem. He goes, who are you? And he goes, my name is Jonah. I'm a Hebrew prophet. And all of the problems that you have are because of me, because I'm in rebellion and disobedience to God. And I don't want to do what God wants me to do. The captain says, what do you think we should do? Jonah says, well, under normal circumstances, the best course of action would be for me to obey God, to repent of my wickedness and my sin, and we could turn the ship around, and I could actually start obeying God. But he doesn't say that. He goes, you know what your best bet is? Throw me overboard. Do you know why he says that? 
If you get thrown overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean, what do you suppose your chances of survival are? Zero. That's, that's the right answer. He says, throw me overboard. I'd rather be dead than obey God. Have you ever met someone who would rather be dead than obey God? They'd rather be dead than to turn to him. They'd rather be dead to look to him for grace and mercy and love and salvation. They would rather be dead. And you know what? The Lord prepares a gigantic sea creature. We're not told what sea creature it is or how he even survived. But you know what's crazy? This sea creature swallows Jonah. And I know that you probably know people. I don't, oh, that's nonsense. I can't believe that. I can't believe that even for a minute. I've had people tell me that. Do you believe Jonah was swallowed by a gigantic sea creature? Yes. How do you know? Well, look, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. Well, what if he's not there? Well, then you can ask him. (laughs) He's swallowed by this gigantic creature. And even in the midst of this gigantic creature, the Lord speaks to him and says, don't you think it's time to turn your life around? And the sea creature takes him in the direction of obedience. You may not be able to see this, but if you read God's answers to Job, the questions that he's asking and the statements that he's making, he's trying to get Job to understand just how great he is. In verse 11, he says, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. The idea being that God doesn't need to purchase anything. He owns everything. Who has preceded me? The idea being, is God beholden to anyone or anything? The answer is no. Everything under heaven is mine. Do you realize that in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 35, this exact scripture, Paul quotes it in the book of Romans, which we've been studying on Sunday, in chapter 11, verse 35, where it says, Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. Paul, when he quotes the passage, he does so in the context of God's matchless wisdom and incomprehensible goodness. And the very next statement that Paul makes as as he quotes that scripture is, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul is quoting from the book of Job and understanding In its context, it speaks of his glorious majesty. When he says, everything under heaven is mine. One translation says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Pause for a moment. Everything under the heaven is mine. 
Do you think that minimum means God owns everything? That's, that's safe. Everything under the heaven is mine. Are you under heaven? The answer is yes. In other words, here's the, the declaration of God. You belong to me. I made you. I created you. Everything about you, your hair, your eyes, your nose, your brain, your likes, Everything, the gifts, the callings, the sum, and the substance that makes you, you. He made you. So here's my question to you. If he owns everything, does that also mean that he owns you in the circumstance that you find yourself in? I think that that's the right answer. Everything under heaven is mine. So you see, the moment that you acknowledge that, the moment you say, I'm yours, Lord, I'm yours, what else is is the Lord's? Your pain, your hurt, your difficulty, your circumstances, your doubts, your inconsistencies, your failures. You see, all of the things that I was thinking about with Robin Williams, I, I don't know what was going through his head. I have no idea the pain or the torment or the difficulties that he was facing. What would cause a person to put a belt around their neck and prop themselves against a door and asphyxiate themselves so that the life leaves them? What kind of pain, what kind of difficulty, what kind of circumstances would cause a person to say, my pain and my circumstances means that whatever Whatever hope might be real or whatever faith I might be able to embrace, the circumstances and the pain pushes it away so that it's no longer a part of who you are. And the Lord reminds Job, think carefully because Job is on that trash heap. Job is covered with boils. Job has lost everything. Job's children are dead. His friends have been less than accommodating. And the Lord says, everything under heaven is mine. Minimum, this has to mean, Job, you're mine. And your circumstances are mine. The circumstances that you find yourself in right at this very moment. One Bible commentator said, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, including Job and his circumstances. Job had declared more than once that he would be ready to present his defense to God, that he would, if given the opportunity. But now that Job has the opportunity, he has nothing to say, unquote. Everything under heaven belongs to Jesus, and all authority, the Bible says, in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And you see, this is why this book becomes so important to you. Because Jesus lays claim to you. 
Part of the point of the passage is who can resist God's desires? Who can rebuke God's demands? Who can make God do what God is unwilling to do? And so he says, consider the creature's traits from here to chapter 12 or verse 12 all the way to verse 34. It says, I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power or his graceful proportions. The idea being that he would reveal his limbs, his mighty power, and his graceful proportions. And by the way, this is one of the other reasons why I don't think that this is a crocodile. Because the limbs of crocodiles, well, they are suited for water. But have you ever seen a crocodile's legs? I don't consider them graceful or gracefully proportioned. Who can remove its outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? The idea being, whatever this gigantic creature is that's covered with armor, who can say, hey, you know what? Will you come over here and just let me, well, strip you? The idea is, uh, no one. Who can open the doors of his face? That means pry its mouth open with its terrible teeth all around. We might put up a picture of a, of a dinosaur with terrible teeth and gigantic scales. Yeah, look, look. Can you imagine going up to that creature and going, Hey, can I be your dental hygienist? <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to happen. His rows of scale are his pride. Shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near the other that no air can get in between them. The idea of whatever this creature is, and whatever this creature is, it has overlapping scales that are airtight and watertight and impenetrable. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be parted. In verse 18, his sneezings flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. The idea being... The picture is an idiomatic expression in the sense of, have you ever seen the sun come up in the morning? Bright red against the clouds. This poetic expression is, this creature's eyes are like the sun coming up over the horizon. Bright red. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of its nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes his breath kindles coals and a flame of fire goes out of his mouth. And I know what some people are thinking, a fire breathing dragon. (laughs) This can't be real. This can't be true. Eric Lyons at Apologetics Press writes this paragraph that I found interesting. He says, quote, no doubt you've heard reports from world history of fire-breathing dragons. Although many of these stories may have been exaggerated, similar to how a person today exaggerates the size of a fish that he's caught or a bear that he's killed, the idea of a fire-breathing animal should not be too hard to accept. 
Surely atheists who mistakenly believe everything evolved from nothing and life popped out of non-life would not think it would be impossible for a mere fire-breathing animal to evolve. What's more, creationists have no reason to think that an all-powerful, all-knowing creator could not make such a creature. After all, God did create insects that light up, eels that can't can shock others but can't shock themselves. Bombardier beetles that can expel powerful chemicals from their bodies at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, that's the boiling point of water. Is it possible? Is this hyperbole? Is it poetic exaggeration? In verse 22, he says, strength dwells in its neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They're firm on him and cannot be moved. Verse 24, his heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. That means that you can't penetrate it on the back and you can't penetrate it from the front. And even if you could penetrate it, its heart is impenetrable. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. It is pretty awesome to see a crocodile rolling in the Nile. But I think that there's something way more awesome than to see a dinosaur crashing in the waters. Do we put up our dinosaur image? Look at that. That's probably what a plesiosaurus looked like. And by the way, when you read in verse 22, strength dwells in its neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of its flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. In verse 25, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings. They're beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail. Imagine you have a sword and you start poking it and you go, uh-oh, this isn't going anywhere. Nor does spear or dart or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrows cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. <laughs> His undersides are like many sharp potsherds. That means a broken pieces of pottery that are jagged and that are sharp like glass that's broken. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. The image, the poetic image, is a, of a creature coming out of the water, and it drags itself on the mud, and the scales underneath its belly leaves furrows wherever it goes. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. That means when it's in the water, you can see the bubbles start to churn and make their way. Whatever this creature is, it's comfortable in the sea. It's comfortable in the ocean. Now, again, in verse 31, he makes the deep coil like a pot. There are some, some Bible teachers who have suggested, well, the reason why we know that this is a crocodile is because, because crocodiles are found in the, in the Nile 
and they're not found in the sea? Well, the right answer to that is most species of crocodiles are found in fresh water. But there are salt water crocodiles that have been found in deep oceans. So is this a gigantic crocodile or, or is this something else? And, and part of the problem I have with crocodiles is as scary as they are, I've never seen one breathing fire. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. The picture is a creature so large that it leaves a stream on the ocean. Have you ever seen a gigantic boat or ship? Have you ever seen like a cruise ship or a destroyer? And when it's making its way through the water, you can see the line in the water. Whatever this creature is, it is so big and so massive that when it moves through the water, it leaves lines in the water that look like white hair. On earth, there's nothing like him, which is made without fear. Whatever this creature is, This creature isn't afraid of any other creature. And again, it says, he beholds everything on high. He is king over all the children of pride. It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew. It means he looks down on everything haughty. And so the image is this creature, whatever this creature is, and however this creature is to be described, it's seen as the king over all who have pride. In other words, the implication is a hierarchy of pride. Think about all of the animals that exist on the earth and how proud that they are and how how cool that they are or how awesome that they are or how aggressive that they are or how dangerous that they are and then you take all of the dangerous animals that exist in the whole wide world and this creature considers all of the other creatures nothing is this creature a dinosaur is this creature a crocodile Is this creature some creature that used to exist but no longer exists? A lot of people have a lot of different ideas. Is this creature minimum a symbol of Satan? I'm going to suggest to you that it is a symbol of Satan. Because he's the king of pride. And if he's the king over all of the children of pride... And if pride, if you take it and you boil it down to its essence, if you were to take pride and then put it in a pot and start cooking it and everything is cooked away and the only thing that is left, the only thing that is left in that pot is questioning God. Pride insists that the revelation of God is probably not true. Pride is the implication That whatever God wants may or may not be important, but whatever I want becomes the most important thing of all. 
So pride causes us to question God, and pride insists that the revelation of God probably isn't true. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Paul warns, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. August Bloch wrote, Pride is tasteless and colorless and sizeless, yet it is the hardest thing to swallow. (laughs) And the reason why we need to swallow pride is because we need to be able to acknowledge that God is God and that we're not God. Dr. Doug Groteis, who's been my guest here and who's spoken from this very pulpit, said, Pride says... I'm the Lord my God, and I shall have no other gods beside me, and I shall love the Lord myself with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength and with all my mind. That's what pride does. It invites God to leave the position of care, control, sovereignty, Spurgeon famously preached, pride is a stab at deity. It's an attack upon the undivided glory of God. And and Spurgeon said, and oh man, hate pride, flee from it, abhor it, do not let it dwell with you. Do you know why pride is such an awful thing and such a terrible thing? Because pride constantly whispers on the inside of your soul, You don't really need God and you don't really need the Bible and you don't really need Jesus and you don't really need salvation and you don't really need a savior. Your pride says, you know, really the only thing that you need is you. You just need to be you. You need to be happy with you. You need to get what you want and have what you want. Pride, of course, deprives us of God's help and robs us of his mercies. Can you imagine being in a place where you have everything, everything you could possibly want, and there's something inside of you that says, cry out to God, plead with Jesus, accept his offer of mercy and grace, and someone's A voice whispers in your ear, you don't need that. You don't need that. You don't need religion. You don't need God's help. And you don't need Jesus' help. And the pain becomes overwhelming. And the darkness palpable. But pride insists that we don't need God's help. You know what's interesting about pride too? Not only will pride insist that you don't need God's help, but it will eventually make you arrogant towards others. It will make you arrogant towards others because you have come to the place where you say, I don't need your help either. The Lord paints a picture of a creature that he alone is able to control. And the Bible paints Satan as a creature who's the author of sin and the bringer of death. The Bible says that he was a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning. The Bible refers to him as a deceiver and the Bible refers to him as the king of pride. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that even though you might think you can control Satan, you can't. And even though you might think that you can put a muzzle or a hook or a bridle on your pride, there's only one solution. And it isn't to capture it, and it isn't to tame it, and it isn't to domesticate it. It's to kill it. And the only place that it can legitimately die is on the cross of Calvary. Is this an ancient description of an aquatic dinosaur? Maybe. Is this a description of an, of an ancient gigantic crocodile, a fire-breathing crocodile? Whatever conclusions you draw, it is a passage about the power and the glory and the majesty of the Creator. And it is an invitation to ask questions. You see, that's what Job has done throughout our study. Why does God permit evil? Why does God allow suffering? Does God permit evil in part to reveal grace? Some suggest that God is powerless and helpless against the forces of darkness or evil, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God will sometimes allow what is perceived as pain or suffering or evil Probably, at least in part, sometimes in order to avert a greater catastrophe or a more gross evil, only a person with a perfect sense of justice and the power to bring about that justice is the one who can negotiate the explosive minefield of all of these difficult questions. What is the greatest good? Well, imposition of goodness on those who hate goodness... Some people might say, whatever is good, everyone should be forced to do it. By the way, if God is a God of love, and if God is all love, does God in the Bible appear like the kind of God who is going to enforce goodness on everyone? And by the way, if God wanted each and every person to be good right at this very moment, would they? He could do that. But you wouldn't be involved in the process. <laughs> Will punishing this evil result in an even greater evil down the road? Is there some part of the universe where rogue operatives make choices and refuse to consult God and his character about their choices? McKenna writes, unencumbered trust is God's goal for his servant Job, unquote. And that's what the Lord is looking for. People who will trust him. My friend Ron Rhodes says, if God is all good, and he is, he will defeat evil. If God is all powerful, and he is, he can defeat evil. Yet evil is not yet defeated. Therefore God can and one day will defeat evil.
You see, we might be asking the question, why don't you do it now? Why don't you do it right now? And it could very well be that God has unfinished business and an unfinished plan. And the unfinished business and the unfinished plan includes you coming to a place of submission and obedience instead of rebellion and disobedience to God. So God isn't finished yet. In the end, evil will be destroyed. And one day in the future, Jesus will return and he will strip power away from the wicked. And he will hold all men and women accountable for the things that they've done on this planet. And justice will ultimately And permanently prevail. And those who enter into eternity. Without having trusted Christ for salvation. Will understand just how effective God really is. In dealing with the problem of evil. And making sure. That justice is done. One more chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, what an amazing passage. What an amazing Lord. Lord, we sometimes think that we know what's best. And in moments of clarity and submission, we we understand that that's just simply not true. That, Lord, you know what's best. Only you have the wisdom And only your goodness and supreme power can combine wisdom and goodness to make sure that the right choice is made. Heavenly Father, we understand that the choices that we make apart from you, apart from your character, apart from your wisdom, apart from your insight, are probably not the best choice. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes by sheer mercy and sheer grace, you've allowed us to stumble into circumstances. You've preserved our life. You've, re- you've retained at least some measure of our sanity and dignity. And yet, Lord, we know that for some of us, sanity and dignity are fast disappearing. And so, Lord, we pray that while we have half of a brain, that, Lord, we'll submit to you. That we will refuse to pretend that we can control you or manipulate you. In humility, Lord, we pray that we would bring ourselves to that position of submission where we would say, Lord, you control me. Lord, place me where you want me to go. Lead me and guide me by your loving kindness. Direct me with your ever watchful eye to the place that's going to bring you the ultimate glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.